0: Uh, Nehemiah chapter eight, and so if you want to turn there, that'll be one of our major portion of scripture. But I'm going to look at some other scriptures between between here and there, um, and I'll just mention them as as we come across them, and you can write them down or uh, turn there real quick. But uh, isn't language an in, uh, an interesting thing? I don't know if you think about this much because we we kind of take it for granted that when we talk to people. Um, you know, if we're in the same same culture and have the same language, we talk to people, we expect that there's going to become some kind of mutual understanding that happens between, uh, between the two of us. And we have these um, words that are little carriers of meaning, and we can communicate really deep thoughts and express our inmost thoughts. And sometimes when that happens, there's a little bit of miscommunication. I, I know that's the case because sometimes I'll preach a message and uh, somebody will come up to me afterwards and say, well, you said you were saying this. And I was like, well, that was not what I intended. And so I know there's some difficulty that goes with language. And and let me suggest to you an analogy that came to me recently. Have you ever, I don't know if you've ever thrown a baseball or a softball to somebody or, or any kind of ball. Anybody done that? Okay. Anybody not done that? Because if you haven't tonight after church, uh, we can go out back and toss one around just so you can share that experience. But, Uh, If you have, you know that when you throw a ball to somebody, it doesn't always go exactly where it needs to, where where you need it to go, right? And so on the other end of that is somebody trying to catch the ball, and you're throwing the ball to try to get it where they can catch it, right? And if you guys are cooperating together, the other person is trying to move in order to catch that ball. They have to adjust. They have to make adjustments to do that. And I think it's that way with talking, with language, with speaking to one another, is that you have somebody that's throwing something out there, trying to be understood, and sometimes we put way too much upon that other person to try to get them to to say what we can understand, and we don't make the adjustments to try to hear and receive it. Do you understand that that language and communication, communication, uh, means, it's it comes from a word that means communication We're sharing something together. And so we're sharing something in common. And it means that we both have to cooperate in the speaking and in the understanding. So we need to, when we speak, we need to try to be understood. We need to say it in a way that um, we think that others will understand. But then on the other side, when we're being spoken to, we need to we need to be receptive to that. We need to make the adjustments that are necessary. And a lot of these things happen kind of automatically. We're looking at uh, facial expressions. We're, uh, we're listening for tone. Like, have you ever noticed that you can say the same thing, but it's said in a different tone, it, it becomes mean? Uh, in other ways, it, beca- <laughs> it, becomes, it becomes nice. Um, it's, there's sarcasm. There's all kinds of uh, innuendo that can be can be used and and sometimes I think the British are really good at this they 're really good at cloaking a, um, an insult in a way that sounds complimentary, uh, but you 've got to follow that kind of nuance and so communication is hard and it 's active we have to be active listeners when we're we 're trying to communicate and so um, you know we 've got to read all of those clues and try to understand what 's being said and and I think when it comes to the things of God, we need to be active listeners. We have a God who is a uh, a relational God and therefore he's a speaking God. Do you do you believe that God has spoken and and he continues to speak and we need to try to position ourselves in order to receive what it is that he's saying to us. And so often, especially if we're not quite in the place where we need to be with the Lord, uh we're not active listeners or Uh, Some people try, you've probably talked with people like this, they try to twist the word of God to make it mean what they want it to mean. Okay, How frustrating is that when people do that to us? Like we've said something, but then they take it out of context and try to use it against us. Uh, that happens all the time in the news cycles. You know, you'll take a little snippet or a soundbite, and then the spin doctors will spin that in a way that can be used against a candidate or a politician or a personality, or uh, sometimes it's the Christian preacher that's up there trying to express their view, and they take that little snippet and twist it. And um, I would encourage us that if we're to be fair in communication, we have to try to say things. We have to think of the other person. Okay, The other person is talking, we need to try to hear them as they're trying to communicate. Okay? And then um, when we're trying to communicate, we need to say it in a way that we think they'll understand. And sometimes there'll be give and take, like, I don't understand what you're saying, it needs to be said in a different way. But there needs to be understanding and patience in that, okay? God is the ultimate communicator, and he always says the right word, okay? And if there's misunderstanding, it's not on his part, would you agree? It's on our part, that we need to adjust ourselves. We need to position ourselves to receive from him. I want to talk about the word of the Lord tonight, and that God is a speaking God, and and he's made himself known by speaking to us, and he uses language in a way that, that we use language. Obviously, um, when he spoke, He uh, and it was spoken to the prophets, it was through the language of his people at the time. And one of the things that I find so fascinating about this is that when God spoke, um, in in uh, Israel's history, he spoke in Hebrew, but then get this, when the people went into captivity and they started speaking Aramaic, he sent his prophets to speak in Aramaic. Isn't that interesting? And then later on, when the New Testament was written, the majority of the church was Gentile, and the world was a Greek-speaking world. It's sort of like the world's language today is English, like like Everybody everywhere is trying to learn English, and that's kind of the world, the the universal language. If we're going to do business, it's usually going to be done in English, and so that's just kind of the way things are. It used to be French at one time, and it used to be Greek. During the time of the writing of the New Testament, it was Greek, and do you know what kind of Greek um, the writers of the New Testament used? Do you think it was the Greek of Plato and Aristotle and uh, the um, the tragic and comic playwrights of classical Greek. No, it was the Greek of common everyday language. They thought at one time when they were doing Greek studies, they thought that maybe um, this was some kind of specialized vernacular that only the church used. And then what they found, they found, and this is just in the last 200 years, they found this pile of old documents written in Greek, and it was things like shopping lists. And what they discovered was that the Greek of the New Testament was called Koine or Common Greek. And so what that tells us is that God, he wasn't trying to write in a fanciful way, okay? Um, He wasn't trying to be uh, elegant. He was trying to say things in a way that people could understand. And I think there's something really beautiful about that is that God is not trying in every way to hide himself the Bible does say he tries to hide himself from those who don't want to hear him. But when people have a hungry heart, God is not hiding from us. Are you with me? He's not trying to somehow veil himself and say, no, I'm sorry, you just, you've, ser- you've sought me a lot, but you haven't sought me to the point that I want you to seek me. It's not like he's hiding from us. He wants to be known, and so he's a speaking God. All that to bring us into this uh idea of god as a speaking god is a god who is a communicating god and by speaking you know he created the world that we know he spoke it into existence let there be light and there was light and then he uh ordered through his voice the the different parts of creation and um you know it's also by speaking to us that he creates in in humanity the kind of person that we become and these really are kind of two different aspects of him speaking and we should talk about the difference because when he he speaks to creation and he created the the universe it came into being because he decreed it but when he recreates us through his word um, he he made something that was a little bit different that needs to be dealt with in a different way okay so the creation let's just say the trees the The water, the sun, the moon, God spoke it, and it cooperated, right? And then he created humanity, and and that came into being as he created it. But then it tells us something about uh, humanity that marks it off. What does the Bible say about humanity that distinguishes us um, from all the rest of creation? Go ahead. He breathed into us the breath of life, and then there's a statement about about. Said it was good. Anything else you can think of? Very good. Okay. The living soul? Created in, Created in his image. That's that's what I was looking for. All those other answers I hadn't thought of, but they're really good. <laughs> um Yeah, Genesis 127. Notice what it says if you if you want to just listen and try to catch what I'm saying, <laughs> or if you want to look there yourself. Genesis 127 says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Okay, so he's created humanity in his own image. Let me let me say something about that. Um, I want to point out uh, three quick things. Number one is he created, uh, that we were created in the image of God. and And this needs to be something that we cling to, in a big way in today's confused world, okay? Because um, a lot of people want to put any of the animal species on the same level with humanity, and biblically you can't do that. Are you with me? That it's not like we're all just animals. Yes, there's a sense in which we're animals or creatures of God's creation, but not in the same way, okay? There's something distinct about humanity that makes us different, okay? So, Yes, whales are important. But remember, uh, Jesus talks about uh, God knowing the sparrows that fall out of the sky. Um, he says, and you're worth more than many sparrows. Right? I want to know the math on that, by the way. Someday, how many sparrows equals a human? That would be interesting to know, wouldn't it? But I, I don't think it's even in the same category. And and uh, importance isn't defined by size either, okay? It's not we're more important than sparrows because we have more molecules or we're bigger. Because if that's the case, then giraffes are more important than humans, and so are whales. But they're not, and not in accordance with God's word. So he created us in the image of God. The second thing about that is that he created both male and female in the image of God. That's really important, both male and female uh, are created in the, uh, in the image of God. And then the third thing goes along with that. Both male and female are representatives of the image of God. Now, you might say, what about that verse in the New Testament where it says something about man is created in the image of God and females or woman is created in the image of man? And uh, let's think about that because let's, uh, this is in 1 Corinthians eleven seven, where Paul is talking about head coverings and that really complicated issue about Um, church practice in that in that time and he says actually this listen a man is the image and the glory of God and then listen closely um, but woman is the glory of man what's missing from that second statement image women are not made in the image of men Women also are made in the image of God, and therefore, representatives of the image of God. And I want you to hear me very closely, because I don't want you to hear me saying, God is female, okay? But what you do need to know is that all the characteristics and qualities that are female originated in the heart of God, and there's glory to it, okay? Sometimes we forget that in in the church, we think of, you know, God as masculine, and and yes, all the masculine pronouns are used, but hear me when I say everything that's feminine, that's glorious, is from the mind and heart of God and it comes out of the character of God, okay? So it's in the image of God. He created them male and female. So God's image and likeness is not a physical likeness. Uh, for one, Christian theologians from early days didn't believe that God had a physical body. Only when Christ came did deity dwell in physical form. And, and you probably... Think back upon the, the theophanies in the Old Testament where God comes, and it, it seems that he comes in some kind of tangible flesh for a moment where he's revealing himself. But um, in the omnipotence of God, he's not corporeal like we have these bodies. He has a spiritual body. Okay? All right, all of that out of the way, I want to say that one of the distinctions that we don't really know with absolute certainty what the image of God means, okay? This has been debated by theologians for 2,000 years. What does it mean to be in the image of God? We're going to take this super literally, like we're an exact, re- or Adam is a re- exact repli- replication of what God looked like. I think that goes way too far, okay? Um, is it some character or aspect of who humanity is that puts us in the image of God? Because if, if it's Adam in the image of God like that, then, how do we adjust for the Eve part being made in the image of God? Adam and Eve look exactly alike that's weird. okay, You understand what I'm saying in this, and so this has to do with something else but and I 'm not interested in trying to prove one theory over another. Um, we just know that because of being made in the image of God, that we can relate to him in a way that all the other creatures can't. Okay Would you agree with that that that's that we can relate to God? in a way that lions can't, and frogs can't, and inanimate objects like rocks and the grass or whatever you want to put in there, that we're created for specialized relationship, okay? Jesus, when he came, took on human flesh, didn't take on the flesh of inanimate objects. That's that's animism. That's another religion altogether. No, he came as one of us. He The word became flesh and he dwelt among us. And so there's something uh, special about this relationship in which communication can really happen. And so uh, we can relate to him. And it seems to me that it must somehow, this image thing must somehow relate to a measure of self-determination and free thought and action. Okay, so... Uh, maybe the image of God relates to us about how we have free self-determination whereas the animals, they respond to instinct or, or whatever. There's not the same personality that there is in free self-determination where we can think um, in a consistent way and plan and get outside of ourselves and look at what we've done and say, ooh, what I did was not good. You know what I mean? That we can We can get outside of ourselves and try to look objectively at decisions we've made and things we've said and and even, <laughs> we may have even argued with ourselves. Anybody ever done that? Like you've taken both sides of the position and argued with yourself, okay? So you, you realize that, uh, that this is also part of us dealing with the fact that there is desire and there are, there are different things within us that are warring, and God has given us the ability to see that and also to create. But that determ- self-determination and thought and action is within limits, Okay, I want to make, make sure that's clear is that when we say, um, that we have free will, it's not absolute freedom. You can't just, you know, do whatever. You know, without God's specific help, we can't defy gravity. Okay. Or push a building over or live to be a thousand years old. Um, or learn to play Chopin and on the piano in a day. We can't do that. But we could learn to play Chopin really well if we took a lot of time to do it. And we can, um, we can build tractors and push buildings over, right? And we can get into airplanes and make the make the law of gravity subservient to other forces. Uh, so there's a measure of self determination, but it's within limits, okay? And that comes to our communication with God. I said there was a difference between God speaking and uh, creating and creation conforming to his speaking. The difference is that we've been given self-determination, a will that's free to choose to obey or rebel within limits. Maybe it's a window of freedom. That might be the way we would look at it, in which we can make our, our moral choices. And so he's given us some freedom within that. So when he speaks to us and says, be conformed to the image of God, be conformed to the image of Christ, We can either choose to accept or reject that, can't we? Can we? I think so. I think we have freedom to choose in that regard. He's given us what we need to do. He's told us how to be obedient. But then it seems that our freedom is God's self-limitation. He's limiting himself and saying, I'm giving you the freedom so that we can operate within a relationship where we are we're in a real relationship, not just some kind of, you know, if you have, this is this is weird, but it's coming. People are going to, in the future, I think, and it's it's not far away, create their own AI and marry them. Could you see that as a possibility in this weird world? I could. There was a movie about it. I hadn't seen it called Her, and it uh, talks about falling in love with AI. So this is just around the corner. It's weird. But can you really be in love with somebody that doesn't have self-determination and free will? Something that's created to match us. Okay? Can you really love? That's something to think about, and I think the church is going to have to address that in the future. We need to pray for great Christian minds in the next generation because they're going to face challenges that we've never known about. So anyway, having said that, uh, God is created with uh, with a certain free will. We can either accept or reject him. And so when he speaks, we can accept it. And accepting means hearing. Okay, Here, Here's the interesting thing about hearing. Uh, I think the Hebrew word for this is shema. You've probably heard of the shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. The first word, hear, shema. In Greek, it's akouo, and it means not only to hear, but to hear and understand, to hear and receive. It's, it's to hear in an obedient way, not in a way that says, you know, like somebody's talking to you and telling you something that you don't really want to hear, and it just kind of goes in one ear out the other. This is more like the, the listening, that you're actively catching what's being thrown at you, okay? So when we say we're hearing, uh, as part of accepting is we're We're trying to hear what God has said. And then accepting it also involves believing because a lot of times what God's calling us to is an act of faith. We need to respond in a faithful way that says, Yes, I believe what you've said and I will obey it. Believing is not just uh, mental acceptance either. Like, Yes, that's true. It's a way that puts our life behind it. Okay? So when you say you believe, you're ready to take action with it. And so, Accepting is hearing, believing, and obeying, which results in a more sensitive heart. If you want to get a hard heart for, uh, towards God, you, the way to do it is reject his word and close your ears to what he has to say and harden your heart to him. And pretty soon, he'll have to get louder and louder, and pretty soon you probably won't be able to hear it. And when that happens, that's dangerous. Because to whom will we turn if we can't hear the voice of God? Rejecting the word of God, which is kind of what we've been talking about at the end of this, at the end of that, is uh, ignoring, disbelieving, and rebelling, which results in hardness of heart. Okay, so a person will change. I think anytime somebody comes into contact with the word of God, let's let's say this happens all the time, and sometimes you see it on TV, um, a movie about these people who don't love God at all. And they're getting married, but at their wedding, they're going to have 1 Corinthians 13 read. Okay, are you with me? So that's talking about love. And, of course, they just want some flowery poem to accompany their wedding to make it a little more elegant. They're not thinking about how this is the word of God. But what they've done by ignoring it is harden their heart to it. And it becomes more and more... Uh, of a rebellion against God as time goes on. And so every time we come into contact with the Word of God, we either uh, harden our heart to it or we warm to it and accept it. I think we're always changed by the Word of God. Either we're changed by accepting and um, clinging to it, or we're changed by rebelling against it and going the other way. Um, So we're always changed in one way or the other. Some people would be content if they never heard the voice of God. Do you know that? They don't want to hear the voice of God. We, we, I think, probably most of us find that really hard to understand. We find that the Word of God is spiritual bread for us. It's life. It's not um, a take-it-or-leave-it proposition for us. It's not easy to just go on living in this world without having uh, divine revelation come, or God expresses his heart about a matter, or he expresses his love for us, or he communicates what his will is for uh, our direction, okay? Uh, but some people don't want that. They're not interested in hearing from God. Either they don't like what he says, okay, or they don't like the interruption, or maybe they're afraid of the word of God. Some people are satisfied about not hearing from from God from fear, uh, like, if God really speaks, he's a real person. He really cares about what's going on in my life. And I, some, I think some people are more comfortable with the idea of a God who doesn't interrupt and he's distant. Because you can kind of go on living your life that way. But when God comes real close and personal and we realize these, there's a there's a numinous awe, there's something about that that settles in upon our heart? and says, this is real. What am I trifling with here? I better not be trifling. You know, I better not be I better not be acting like this is a light thing. Okay, because God is a real person and He really speaks. And so there's fear that can come from that. And then some people are resentful, like it's an inconvenience to them. They don't want to hear what God has to say. And some people are apathetic, like I just I don't care. And apathy, I think, comes from a hardness of heart. Okay. So let me mention. A couple of illustrations in those each each of those categories. I'll, just one from each category. Number one is the the fear of God speaking, and you'll remember the story of the Israelites. Um, God has just spoken to them at Mount Sinai in Exodus twenty, and the Israelites look up and they see the phenomena and they they hear the voice, but they don't see any image there. And Moses has kind of come down the mountain, and their response is sad because. You'll hear later on, some, you'll hear in just a moment something else. But this is Exodus 20, verse 18 and 19. When the people saw the thunder and the lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance, and they said to Moses, speak to us yourself, and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us, or we will die. Is okay? so that good or bad? Good or bad? What do you think? I, I think the reverence is good, so let's get that one out of the way. What's the bad part about it? They didn't want to hear God for themselves. Anybody else? They don't want to be in that close of a relationship. They want an intermediary. Would you, you see that? And that's fine when it when Jesus is the intermediary, but when we start to produce intermediaries, and, and these tend to multiply like you can see this in some religions is that first it's like the priest and then it's this series of saints and angels and in order to get to God, you got to go through a whole chain of intermediaries in order to talk to him and that was never the way he intended it because he wants to have a relationship with us all. He didn't He didn't make us as some kind of, we got to go down some kind of chain of command to get to you. Uh, I'm telling you right now, my Protestant bones are, are, are joyful right now in hearing this message because man we don 't have to go through another intermediary except Jesus, the one who is both God and man he 's the perfect one to stand there as our intermediary okay but they didn 't want to do that. Do you remember Moses when uh, he was he was having a little bit of a hard time in ministry, and his father in law who was not necessarily like a super godly guy said moses you 're going to die if you keep doing this. you need help, So he cries out to the Lord, and the Lord says. I want you to appoint 70 elders, and I'm going to take from the spirit that's on you, and I'm going to put it upon them. Do you remember that? And so this occasion was set up. There's actually 72 of them. They were going to represent the tribes of Israel. There were 72 of them. Two of them stayed back in their tents, but the other 70 gather. And God pours out his spirit upon them, and what do they do? They prophesy. And I think it was Joshua said, Moses, the people are prophesying. You need to stop them. Moses is like, oh, Joshua, are you jealous for me? He said, I would, love this, I would that all of God's people were prophets. In other words, Moses' heart, and I think he's expressing the heart of God there, is that he wants all of God's people to hear from him, hear from God. And that he doesn't want to necessarily be the intermediary for all of these people. And I, I hope you understand that you don't have to hear from me to hear from God. You can talk to God, and God will speak to you. And that's really important. Always, always, though, it needs to be in line with what Scripture says. All right? Okay, so fear is one obstacle or one reason why people don't want to hear from God. Another one is resentment. Okay. Some people don't like it when God speaks because maybe he has a word of correction or he's going to ask them to do something that's contrary to their plan that they already had. Or they're just simply afraid that he's going to ask them for something like that. You know, if we're honest about it, when um, God asks anything of us, he's really asked for all of us. And so once we've said yes to the all, all of those other things are minor details that are already included in the contract. Do you know what I mean by that? They've already signed the contract that said, I belong to you. So now if he asks you to move to Toledo as a missionary, you got to do that because it's already in the contract. Are you with me? You've already said yes to God. I hope to God that <laughs> all of you get to stay in Anchorage and be a part of Maranatha. But but I'm I'm just saying that that when he calls, um, he may he may he may speak to us in a way that we may not be excited about. And so for that reason, a lot of people are resentful uh, of God's voice. Remember, even in Scripture. In the New Testament, Paul writes to the Thessalonian church, and he says, among a list of little commands, he says, despise not prophesying. When prophecy comes, you need to not despise it. But then he gives some practical advice. He says, cling to the good and flee from the appearance of evil. That doesn't mean flee from everything that looks like it might be sin. It's saying when prophecy comes, distinguish Because you may have to eat the meat and spit out the bones in in terms of that. The story uh, regarding resentment is the story of a a little-known prophet named Micaiah. And if you know about Israel during Micaiah's time, Israel was divided. And actually, the term Israel is confusing because it's really the people of God. Because Israel is the northern kingdom, and they're led by Ahab. And the southern kingdom is Judah, and it's led by Jehoshaphat. And... Ahab, who you know, married to Jezebel and Baal worship and Elijah and all of that. Elijah's not the only prophet in that day, even though he thought he was. There was another guy named Micaiah who was prophesying. And um, somehow Ahab gets Jehoshaphat to decide to go to war with him. And they're going to go to war with a certain country. And Ahab's got an entourage of false prophets that follow him around and tell him whatever he wants to hear. I remember that? 400 false prophets. I don't know what the magic 400 is all about, but 400 false prophets, and they tell him everything that he wants to hear. And Jehoshaphat, he does this two times, two two separate times. He says, is there not a prophet of the Lord in Israel that we can inquire of? And and Ahab says one of those things that I, it just shows me that humans haven't changed. He says, yes, but I hate him. Because he always prophesies negative about me. In other words, I don't want to hear what he has to say because I'm not going to like it. Okay, so Jehoshaphat says, well, let's bring him in. So the time comes where he's to prophesy, and one of the prophets, uh, and maybe I should just read that. There's still one prophet uh, through whom we can inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he never prophesies anything good about me, but always bad. He's Micaiah, the son of Imlah. The king should not say such a thing. Jehoshaphat says, "Like you don't get to pick your prophets based on whether they say good things about you or not." Okay, that's that's one of the lessons in that. Um, but he's resentful. He's resentful towards uh, Micaiah. But Micaiah prophesies first. He prophesies what tone must have been taken sarcastically because it sounds like he says to Ahab, "You should go to war. God will give you victory." But the tone must have been bad because Ahab goes. Why are you doing that? Why are you saying it? Why are you lying to me like that? I know what you're about. So I think I think uh, Micaiah used a little bit of sarcasm, and his tone was apparent. And so Ahab goes, why don't you prophesy what the Lord has really said? And I think the undertone is, you don't want to know. You can't handle the truth, right? That's what, what it's about. And so he does, and one of the guys of the 400 goes over and slaps him on the face and says, when did the Spirit of the Lord leave me and go to you. Well, Ahab refused to listen to Micaiah, and exactly what he prophesied happened. If you know the story, you know that he prophesied that Ahab would die on the battlefield. And Ahab said to Jehoshaphat, I don't know what's going on with Jehoshaphat, that he would do this, but he said, you dress up, Ahab said to Jehoshaphat, you dress up like a king, and I'm going to disguise myself. So he's thinking he can confuse the Lord. And, oh, there's a king out there, and God can't tell which is which, right? It's hilarious. And it says, the Bible makes it clear, some random guy shoots some random arrow in the air, and it happens to find a spot where there's a gap in Ahab's armor, and he gets the mortal wound. So it shows you can't can't pull one over on God. If you end up resenting his word, you're the one who pays. If we do battle against God, we always lose, okay? This is like... This is like one of those uh those logical traps here it's that even if you win against God and get your way, you lose, because he's going to do what's best, and if you, you you might as well just surrender, lay down your weapons. Then we see apathy in the days of Amos, where people just didn't care about the things of the Lord, and uh, that would be the third one is a lot of people they, they just don't care about the things of God and there's other things more important in life they're busy uh, with their own leisure or their own fun and so the word of God begins to move down the priority list and you can see that um, there are consequences of that in Amos's day God said to uh, the people that um, because you've despised the word of the Lord days are coming when you'll not be able to find it I want to talk more about that in just a second Okay, so these are the same reasons: fear, resentment, apathy are the same reasons why people neglect the word of God today. And uh, the sad part is, is that there are consequences to it. The Bible says in Proverbs twenty nine eighteen, where there is no revelation, revelation is God revealing Himself through language. Okay, where there's no revelation, the people, um, the people cast off restraint. Okay, the cast off restraint. This is the same root word that happens in Exodus 32 when Moses comes down the mountain and sees the people dancing around the golden calf. And it says there they the people were dancing wildly or they cast off restraint, the same Hebrew word right there. So why? Because they hadn't yet received the law of the Lord. Okay, the law was coming down the mountain as they were doing that. Okay, so... People cast off restraint where there's no prophetic revelation, where God hasn't, not that God hasn't spoken, where people haven't received it or welcomed it, or the voice has been silenced. Then people cast off restraint. And often the word of God is neglected. Can we really live without the voice of God? And what will happen? I want to just quickly go through a a survey of a few events. The first is the fall. The fall, would you agree with me, the fall is the result of not listening to God's word? Okay? I mean, that's plain, isn't it? Like, don't eat from the tree. Why the tree? I have a theory on that, that it didn't matter which tree it was. God could have arbitrarily picked a tree that was right in the center of the garden just because it was there. The tree wasn't magical. The tree was an escape hatch for free will. That's all that I see that as. It's not like the the tree was a poison fruit, like you eat that and you're going to die. It's that God said, don't do that. And suddenly, I don't think even the first sin was that and this is, this is the Luke interpretation, so take it with a grain of salt. But I don't think the first sin was the eating of the fruit. I think it was when they disbelieved God's word. And I think unbelief precedes wrong action, okay? And so they disbelieved, and then they ate the fruit. The consequence was there, okay? So there was separation from God. They began living with conditions that were below God's best, And I think in terms of judgment, there's both active and passive judgment. Active judgment is when God says, I'm coming after you. Passive judgment is when God lets us have the consequences of our choices. And he withdraws his hand of protection. And both of those are pretty scary. Active and passive judgments can take place. There's personal suffering. Remember, Um, (laughs) to Eve, how many ladies do you think of this? When you're giving birth, when it says you'll have you'll have your children in pain, okay, that was the consequence of fallenness. It's the way that it is. And Adam, you'll have to work the ground by the sweat of your brow. Work is work was part of creation already, but it became really really hard after the fall. Okay, so it wasn't quite the joy and delight that it should have been after the fall. Okay, so there was suffering and and suffering. I'm not saying here that suffering is a one-on-one equation, like every time you commit a sin, there's going to be a direct line of suffering with that. It may be that way, but the point that I'm trying to make is in a, a grander scale is that, that indirectly there is suffering as a result of sin in the world, okay? It's just kind of zooming out and saying a generic thing here. Then there's enslavement to sin or oppressor. There's the loss of a witness, and there's death, Okay, that's as a result of the fall. In the Judges, when people neglected the word of God, and the law had been given by Moses already, and then before they came into the land, he regave the book of the law. He gave, remember, because when he gave the, the law, they'd been about out of Egypt for about 11 months. And then something happened after that. Do you remember? It was kind of a big thing. It lasted a little while. What happened after that? They went to the promised land. They didn't go in. And then? Wilderness. For how long? 40 years. Everybody who's over 40 or over 20 dies, except for Joshua and Caleb. And then at the end of that 40 years, Moses gives the law again. And we call that the book of Deuteronomy. So he gives it again. So they've had the law being taught to them. They have a refresher course on it. Then they go into the promised land. They don't take the promised land like they're supposed to. Then the book of Judges happens. And it says a generation grew up that neither knew God or what he'd done for Israel. And they worshiped the Baals, and God sent oppressors in. And there was all kinds of problems as a result of this. And in Judges 17.6, it says the phrase that I think is like spot on for our culture. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Listen, when there's not a moral compass, when there's not truth like this, two things happen. Either individuals rule themselves. If there's democracy, you can rule yourself in a way where everybody does what's right in their own eyes, or power fills the void, and you have these strict totalitarian regimes. It's one of those two. But when people have a moral uh, compass, the laws don't have to be as strict because people are governed by the law that God has put upon their heart. But if we don't do that, then we have to fill in more and more laws, and we have to be in more and more bondage because we can't handle our freedom. Are you with me? So this is a result, I think, of them rejecting the word of God. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There's no central leadership, so it's not the totalitarian thing. Instead, it's the tyranny of every person. And I think we're seeing that today, is that you, know, you can't do anything without stepping on somebody else's... <laughs> rights or their freedom to feel a certain way or do a certain thing and you can't say things because we've got all kinds of political correctness that uh, Has to stand in the way of just basic human decency that might come from following the word of God But you see some things in judges syncretism with the world They start to adopt the world's practices division to the in the people of God. They're not unified They're fighting and warring with each other the Danites or not the Danites the Benjamites. they they almost get wiped out You have a loss of moral clarity you got people uh in a city of Benjamin, I think it was Gibeah, where um, they're as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah. they really are and it's this is this are people that have received God's law. How could it be that way? but it was because they rejected the Word of God, and then the days of Amos. Amos um, is a prophet about the time, the same time as Isaiah, but Isaiah is in the southern kingdom of Judah. Amos and Hosea are in the northern kingdom. And uh, these are like the northern kingdom's final days. Ahab's already ruled and led them astray. Other kings have come on, and, and it's just gone from bad to worse. And Amos comes along, uh, the shepherd of Tekoa he's called, and he says this in Amos 8.11, The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land. Not a famine of food. Or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. Why? Here's why. It's because God is getting ready to send the Assyrians in and exile them because of their disobedience. And Assyria, when they take the people of uh, the northern kingdom away to captivity, they're not going to establish churches on every corner. They're not going to tolerate prophets of God in every place. And so people are going to look for the word of God and they're not going to find it. And that's the sad part is that we've, we surrender listening to the word of God. An oppressor will come in and fill the place. They rejected the word of the Lord. They followed the ways of the nations. They served Baal and Asherah. Their prosperity um, would quickly be removed. You know, the northern kingdom, when Amos is prophesying... Um, prosperity-wise, they're doing great. The majority of the country is doing great. They've got a lot of people. He calls them the sleek cows of Bashan, okay? And what this means is they're fat and sassy. They love their food. They love their drink. They love to party. They're having it pretty good, but they don't know the judgment of God's right around the corner, okay? And so, They're getting ready to see something is going to change, and it does in a moment. Assyria, who they've kind of been flirting with a little bit, joining an alliance, comes in and sacks the city of Samaria and takes everybody captive, carries them away. Do they have the word of God anymore? No. So their possession of the word of God would cease. And then you have the days of Josiah, and this will... Uh, this will be the days later on in the kingdom of Judah, maybe about a hundred years after um, Samaria had fallen. Seven twenty-two BC. We know that we know the year is seven twenty-two BC. Amos probably prophesies about thirty years before that and says the there's going to come a time when you can't you can't get enough to eat spiritually because you won't find the word of God. It's, that's scary. Okay, and then seven twenty-two BC because time moves backwards in the Old Testament. Not in their eyes, but from our account, it goes backwards. 722, and then about 100 years later, Josiah is the king of Judah, and everything's been neglected. The the dynasties that are actually Davidic dynasties have gone up and down in terms of their idol worship and returning to God. And uh, one king after another establishes idolatry, and actually there's one king that is almost worse than any king in the north. Do you know his name? His name is Manasseh, and he convinced the southern kingdom, this is not long before Josiah, he convinced the southern kingdom to take their babies and throw them into this little furnace to the god Moloch and to worship the king of shame, and they did, and God was angry with Judah. And so finally, Josiah is born, and he has a different, for some reason, he has a different approach and he turns to god and he follows god he's a young king he starts at eight and then i think when he's around 16 he starts to renovate the uh, the temple and realize we've neglected the things of god and he starts to tear down the altars that are built to false gods and and uh he starts to reinstitute tithing (laughs) people start tithing again and you know what happens Man, they start to see revival happen as as monies are coming into the treasury. They start to push those monies back out and say, hey, let's let's spend this on renovating the temple. And they start to renovate the temple, and they realize that it's been neglected. And they get into this closet, and they find the book of the law there, and they start to read it. And as they read it, um, somebody reads this for Josiah, and he begins to weep. We've neglected the word of the Lord. We thought we were doing okay. Yeah, my life is going in the right direction, but look at all the requirements that the Lord had for me that I've neglected. Look at the ways that he's wanted us to live as his people and have turned away from that. See, they had neglected the temple. The priesthood had been neglected. There's been a cycle of rebellion and repentance. There's the presence of idolatries. And when Josiah comes along, remember he has the book of the law read, and then he goes to... uh, Um, has somebody go to Hulda, the prophetess, and say, what are we to do about this? And she, they put on sackcloth and ashes and they repented and the Lord forgave them. They said to Josiah, the fall will not happen during your lifetime. Okay, you'll go down to your grave. You'll be buried with your fathers. But then after that, I will punish this people because they're going to turn away. And so this is what happens. Josiah passes on, another king rises up and a couple more and then um, God sends the Babylonians. This is time, during the time of Jeremiah the prophet. And Jeremiah prophesies. God says, don't repent anymore because you're not going to change the outcome. And the Babylonians come in in 586 B.C. and sack the city and uh, take the best and the brightest, people like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, into captivity, and they go away from the land. And The interesting thing is that In that captivity, the word of God not only survives, but it thrives. We have guys like Daniel, and we have Ezekiel, and we have uh, the book of Esther coming out of the exile time. Then they come back into the land, and that takes us to our passage. Did you wonder when we're going to read our text? Here it is. We're right at the end here. Nehemiah chapter 8, and I'm actually going to back up one verse to verse 73 of the previous chapter. The priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the musicians, the temple servants along with certain people, and the rest of the Israelites settled in their towns when they came back from captivity. When the seventh month came, the Israelites had settled in their towns. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. So they're in Jerusalem. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Israel the, uh, excuse me, Ezra, the priest brought the book of the law before the assembly, which was made up of men, women, and all who were able to understand. So this is children, too. And he read it aloud from daybreak till noon. Okay, Can we interpret that as 7 o'clock till noon? It made me feel good about my long preaching when I heard that. Till noon, in, and uh, as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men women, and all who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. So something like a platform or the pulpit there. And then he had all of these guys, you can read their names there, verse 4, where all of these guys who uh, were going to translate the book of the law because he's reading it in Hebrew and all of them coming back from captivity, all the people spoke Aramaic. So he's going to read. They're going to translate. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, all the people stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the God, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, amen. They were were catching what God was saying. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their face to the ground, the Levites. And you can mention those names. They instructed the people. And the law, while the people were standing there, they read from the book of the law, making it clear. They were explaining it. And they were giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. And then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest, and the teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing all the people said to them, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the, the words of the law. And Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy Choice food and sweet drinks, and send some of those to those who have nothing prepared. The day, this day, is holy to the Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, "Be still, for this day is holy. Do not grieve." And then all the people went away to eat, drink, and send portions of food to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that they had been made known to that had been made known to them. There's a people that are rejoicing because they can just understand the Word of God. I don't know if you thought about this, but probably right now in English, we have more translations of the Bible. And you might see that as a bad thing. I think it's a really good thing because you can understand the Word of God in in your language. And if you go, man, King James too hard for me, that's all right. There's a lot of translations that can make it plain for you. We have that available to us. See, people often value other things more than the Word of God. And oftentimes we teach that, people teach that to their kids too. You know, the Bible's more important than that they get a good education. Sometimes we put education up there, and I think education's really important. um, But it's not more important than education in the Word of God. And some people do that with sports. They want their kids to excel at sports. We, We came from a town, it's been over 20 years now, but... Uh, everybody was going to be the next great baseball player. Everybody they had, I mean, their little league field looked like what you might find at a major league baseball park—not in terms of size, but the quality of care for the lawn. Everybody was going to be this tremendous athlete. That's not more important than than knowing the word of God. And some would want their kids to be well liked, but knowing the word of God's more important than that. It's more important. Uh, than that they have fun. And I don't want to dull the razor's edge on this, but I have to tell you that those things are excellent secondary pursuits. They're just not great primary pursuits. The first pursuit needs to be instruction in the Word of God. Um, And the response to the Word of God is that it purifies, it prioritizes, and perfects us as his people. I've been listening to The Abolition of Man by C.S. Lewis, and he is talking there a little bit about education and and, and it's like this long, complicated argument, but um, one of the things that I've really enjoyed about this is he, he talked about historically great teachers who saw it as their job to mold um, their pupils into virtuous people, okay? The way that we view education now, I think a lot of people view education as, let's send you to school to find out what it is that you like, and then you can build a life on that or whatever, Uh, that's probably oversimplification, but he was saying that classically uh, people have thought that one of the reasons that people go to school is not because you like school, but because it will force you to come into contact with things that will make your, will change your tastes and your appetites for what is good. Okay. And so he quotes from a few people. He says, St. Augustine defines virtue as the ordinate condition of the affections or the lawful condition of the affections to which every, uh, object is accorded that kind of that kind of degree of love which is appropriate to it. I kind of um, stumbled through that, but his point is that St. Augustine thought that one of the reasons for virtue is so that we would see the different things in life that we should love and we would love it with the value that it deserves okay first of all God, family, nation, however you'd want to put that uh, but Loving the right things with the right degree. Aristotle says that the aim of education is to make the pupil like and dislike what he ought. Not just going along with our tastes, but molding tastes to what is good and right and true. That's how he saw it. Plato, uh, before him, who was also Aristotle's teacher, uh, he said the little animals, he's talking about pupils, apparently they don't get their personhood in Plato's way of thinking, till later on but he calls it the little animals will not at first have the right responses it must be trained to feel pleasure liking disgust and hatred at those things which really are pleasant likable and disgusting and hateful in other words that appetites have to be trained i don't know if you knew this but uh we have appetites (laughs) right and they have to be disciplined to like the right kinds of things I'm telling you from experience, I've said it before, I did not like church, but I should have liked church, and the fact that I didn't like church was was proof that there was something wrong with me as a kid. I, maybe I got too much TV, maybe my parents spoiled me a little bit with too much fun, um, or they just didn't teach me that you go to church, and whether you like it or don't like it right now, it's going to benefit you when you're older. And so they trained my appetite. Now I love church, and I'm a pastor. <laughs> How did that happen? So we likewise have to learn to love the good and hate the evil, and it doesn't come to us naturally. And so what God does is he speaks to us and he reveals to us what it is that we should like as people. We don't, we're not as the judges, or we shouldn't be as the days of judges where everyone does what's right in their own eyes. We have to do what's right in the eyes of the Lord. And if our what's right in our eyes and what's right in God's eyes don't agree, he's spoken to us about that. And that voice commands us to conform okay we don't get it just go on with the way that we are we have to conform to what it is that he says we should like and love give me one or two minutes here and we'll be done Uh, so God is uh, our ultimate teacher of truth whenever you hear a sermon where there's truth or listen to a song where there's truth or hear from somebody sometimes even unbelievers speak profound truths that truth is God's truth, and it goes back to him. He's the ultimate teacher of it, you know? And that doesn't validate everything everybody says. But where there's truth, it's God's truth, okay? When it comes to the Word of God, I have to tell you that I didn't love the Word of God like I should as a kid. And uh, When it first started to come alive for me, my mom had these books called, uh, I think it was called Arch Books or Archway Books. Which ones were those, Miss Ellen? Do you remember the name of it? They had a golden spine on them and this little arch, like the St. Louis arch on there. And they told the stories of the Bible in pictorial form, and I love those. I think it's probably one of the reasons I like to draw is because I remember seeing those stories come alive, and it piqued my interest in the Word of God. And then um, from that point on, um, we had to memorize verses through my growing up. That wasn't always fun, but one of the things my mom did is, she drew little pictures that helped to communicate that verse. And I would re- remember the verse that I was memorizing by the pictures that were along with the words that were there. And so I remember one um, verse had the word B in it, like B E. And she drew a little B on there and memorized that. And I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. And I memorized a lot of verses. And those things stuck with me. I didn't realize. I hadn't thought about it in years. And when I came to know Christ at 17, the Bible came alive, and it seemed like all the verses that I had memorized when I was a little kid came f- flooding back in, okay? Somehow that had happened, and I think it's that his w- word will not return void. <laughs> it gets in you, it gets in your DNA, it becomes a part of you, and when you come alive in Christ, it's like it comes alive with, with that. And then I want to tell you something, that uh, part of my job is the study, and I, I think I study hard. And I want to tell you, I've not found the Bible boring at all. It's come alive for me even more. Like, there's some really boring commentaries on the Bible out there, and I read them, but the Bible is just alive and powerful. And I just love it more and more all the time. When you start to see the depth that's there, I don't mean that we have, like, 15 different interpretations. I mean, when you see the depth of significance to all of this, and when you start to understand the backgrounds and and different... um, well, a deeper understanding of what is going on there comes alive. It it makes a profound difference, and it will transform us if we we'll let it. We got a thousand different voices screaming at us. We need to listen. We need to catch what what God is sending our way. Amen. Hey, thanks for your gracious attention tonight. I know it's hot in here. I'm hot anyway. This, I mean, temperature wise. <laughs> All right, stand with me if you would. All right. Father, thank you, Lord, for uh, these reminders tonight. I pray that you'd help something that was said tonight resonate with us and that we would love the Word of God. And um, we'd take time to invest in reading your Word and listening for your voice in it. And we pray that, God, you would use that to transform, first of all, us. And, uh, Lord, also our families and then our church and our neighborhoods and our community, our world. Lord, that other lives could be touched and changed. In the same way, we have a generation of people, uh, uh, the time we're living in today, when people are, for whatever reason, neglecting or rejecting the Word of God. And uh, Don't let that be true of your church, I pray. Inspire us to be real students of the Word and to be deep and have something to offer. We don't want the uh, generation we live in to uh, drive their Chevy to the levee and find it dry. We want to be ready to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. How to quote that song at the end. God bless you. <laughs>